Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm so excited about this edition of the Influence Continuum. I have two guests today. Usually I have one, but there's two individuals that each bring some really important perspectives, experience, and uh, will help illuminate so much. First, I want to introduce an old friend and colleague, Frederick Clarkson, who is a senior research analyst at the Political Research Associates, Associates which is a progressive think tank in Somerville, Massachusetts. Fred uh, interviewed me after I got out of the Moonies way back in the 80s, so we go way back. He's also the author of a very important book that I recommend everyone uh, read called Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy, which is what everyone's talking about in the media these days. And Fred, and then I want to introduce uh, Andre Gagne, who I was grateful to interview when I was doing The Cult of Trump. Oh, and I have to say, Fred, Fred really was amazingly helpful in the writing, research and writing of The Cult of Trump, editing, and just educating me a lot. So thank you, Fred, for that. Back to you, Andre. I inter interviewed you, and we have a blog with that interview. I think it was 2018 or 19. You are a full professor in the Department of Theological Studies uh, at uh, the University Concordia in, in was it Montreal? Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've written a book in Fran French all about Trump, and now you tell me that it's going to be published in English. I'm so excited. I'm going to ask you to explain that. You uh, are an experienced person in terms of researching and understanding new apostolic reformation. Uh, and this, this article that came out in, in Religion Dispatches is exactly about that and a schism that's appearing between those who still think God wants Trump uh, uh, to, to, to be president and others that are realizing that's there's no future in that one. And Andre, you've been interviewed by a billion places, the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. cetera. Um, but I wanna use our time to, to dive in, please. Um, tell us what's happening and what the public needs to know. Okay. I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna ask Fred to Fred, just that's set that's the table <laughs> for us, Fred, because you've been, you've been warning people about the rise of the religious right and how they've been doing politics, even though they weren't supposed to be doing politics. And then Trump came into power and said, oh yeah, you can do politics in churches. And all of these the media keeps saying, you know, white Christian evangelicals are his base, and for everybody that I know who are is a Christian, they say the the NAR is not traditional Christianity in any. It's a new invention. Anyway, that's my platter. Take it on, Fred, please. Uh, well, yeah, there is this uh, large. Pentecostal and charismatic movement that's kind of been reorganized and reframed into what we're calling the New Apostolic Reformation. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it to Andre to tell us more about exactly what that is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's. By the way, by the way, I I, I just want to just before Fred sure. continues, uh, 
I really, really want to say that uh, this uh, was an opportunity, a great opportunity for me to, to write with uh, this veteran journalist uh, who's been around forever. So I was extremely honored uh, to be uh, <laughs> to be part you're of this. Immortal uh, now. <laughs> so wait a minute, just for our listeners, you're complimenting Fred on this yeah. piece. Thank yeah. you. Just wanted to be clear that people yeah. aren't confusing it with yeah. the, whoever is doing your new book, yeah. the yeah. English. Okay, yeah. back no, back no, to no. you, Fred. And, you know, it was a great opportunity to collaborate with Andre, and we've intended to do it for a long time. We finally got to it uh, because this amazing thing happened. Uh, yeah, the, the evangelicalism and the Christian right more broadly has evolved. Mm -hmm. A lot of us operate in one of those little snapshots in time. You know, some of us haven't gotten past the Falwell era or the Robertson era. You know, or even the George Bush era when somebody said that he was the leader of the Christian right. Hmm. Well, it's true, but you know, but we 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 arrive at these uh, understandings to try to help us to filters to help us to see what's going on. But we're talking about a very dynamic movement, and uh, uh, and what it has become is a key part of, of the Christian right, what many people now call Christian nationalism, uh, that uh, brought Trump to power, and. Trump surrounded himself in his administration with the NAR, a New Apostolic Reformation, uh, related people. His spiritual advisor, Paula White, was an NAR apostle, right? And Paula spoke for the Moonies this last weekend, by the way, in That's Korea. Right, at a conference. Just Yes, and Esper and Gingrich and a few mm -hmm. other uh, folks. Sorry for interrupting you, Fred. No, that's okay, because that's been a part of the long-term pattern of moon involvement with the Christian right and with American political leaders. Exactly. So uh, that, that NAR figures uh, uh, are, 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 are present at a moon event uh, on an international stage like that, it demonstrates the significance of the movement itself, yes. you know, even, in, even in the post-Trump era. So they are very politically engaged. And uh, what... Uh, makes them different, perhaps, than other conservative Christians uh, that we could talk about, is that they believe that they're living in an end times scenario. That's not entirely unusual. But their apostles and the prophets believe that they that God can speak to them and through them. And uh, whatever one may think about the validity of that, there's a lot of political and personal opportunism that exists when you become the voice of God. And that's what uh, uh, a number of other, so many of our leaders took exceptions to what we saw around leaders of, of the Trump-supporting uh, apostles who were spreading the lies that the election, that God supported Trump, mm -hmm. was stolen, and that God you know, is going to restore Trump to power. Those are the three big lies. Yep. And uh, uh, some apostles and prophets took exception to that. They said, oh, this is just political opportunism and doesn't represent any kind of authentic form of the kind of Christianity that they represent. And so they established a set of standards for prophets that they published and named, well, indirectly named, many of the leaders of their own movement who were among the worst offenders. It's a remarkable and historic thing, I think, that we're seeing happen. If I can just state for our listeners, in my world of helping people out of cults, I deal with cult leaders all the time, and they claim to speak directly to God, or they claim to be God, or they claim to be Jesus, and they build up this behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control hold 
on their followers and scare them that Satan is going to possess them and they have to be covered and protected by the prophet or the apostle. And these people are being programmed to be spiritual warriors, which means they should spend all their time online and in, in doing politicking, right? And give all their money over because this is monumentally important. But, the, you know, it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and has feathers like a duck. So when I was writing The Cult of Trump, and Fred, I thank you for calling my attention to NAR, uh, I, I was nervous to say, oh, yeah, 30 to 40 million Americans are in mind control cults. But it walks like a duck and quacks <laughs> like a duck. So um, can I go to you, Andre? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, and, and I... I Exactly. What, what Fred uh, said really summarizes the issues uh, that we tried to uh, discuss in our piece. Um, one of the things we need to, to mention, and, and Fred said this, and uh, this is something that we constantly need to reemphasize, is that the NAR is not a denomination per se. It's really a movement. And even C. Peter Wagner, who is responsible in a sense uh, for uh, the constitution of what became or is now called uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, mm -hmm. understood this as a movement, okay? Um, and the core elements are, what we can call the core element of the NAR is this issue of apostolic governance. And what we have seen in this uh, unfolding with the prophetic standards, mm -hmm. and uh, both of you have talked about uh, the issue of speaking in the name of God, it's all about competing revelatory authority and discourse. It boils down to that. Who is authorized? Who is recognized to speak on behalf of God? And are there mechanisms in place to determine what is true from what is deviant? And when we look at the standards, this is not new. We've talked about it in our, in our piece. Uh, there's a situation in the 90s with the Kansas City Prophets uh, where we had an issue of trying to rein in certain prophetic abuses at the time. It partially worked for a very short period of time, but then it disintegrated. And when we think in terms of a C. Peter Wagner, uh, he had in mind uh, making sure that there was a framework mm -hmm. for apostles and how apostles related to prophets and how prophets had to be accountable to apostolic authority. Mm -hmm. And this was not necessarily something that uh, Wagner himself had invented. We had people, we have people in the days of Wagner, we have this uh, individual that labels himself as an apostle prophet by the name of Bill Hammond. Mm -hmm. who was around during the, the, the rise of the prophetic movement, and he was already writing books on the prophetic ministry, on how you should conduct, what are the guidelines to recognize a prophet, how a prophet functions, what is the role of the prophet, what are the, the limits and standards of prophecy. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened, essentially, is that Wagner, influenced by people like Bill Hammond, who, by the way, and we couldn't put this in the piece, but 
but uh, something that that came up and and that Fred was thinking about is that they they go about by different names. <laughs> they don't always wear the label of apostle or prophet. Some some of them call themselves pastors or bishops. Uh, Bill Hammond is a bishop, for example. Mm-hmm. He, he calls himself a bishop. So. Wagner just inherits from that. So the NAR, in in a nutshell, what we can say about the NAR is it's the project of C. Peter Wagner. Mm-hmm. And it is the reflection of Wagner's own journey in ministry mm-hmm. when he was interested by uh, church growth and then into uh, prophetic ministry and spiritual warfare and so on. And everything culminated in what we call today the New Apostolic Reformation. But I need to ask you a question, Fred, if I may, after listening to Andre, because in understanding what's called fourth-generation warfare, which is psychological warfare to delegitimize science and truth and leaderships and experts and institutions, my understanding is Lind paired up with Paul Weirich of the Christian right. And so there was this unholy connection of military psyops with the Christian right. And I'm wondering how that fits into potentially the NAR movement. Well, I'm not sure if there's a direct connection, although there might very well be. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, that, that it's, uh, it's right that there's similar kinds of things going on, because what the NAR is all about is uh, not all about, but one of the things that they do is to, they're about delegitimizing the institutions of democracy, which they don't believe, and the institutions uh, of, of Christianity, mm. which they see uh, doctrines of other denominations, Catholics, mainline Protestants, other evangelicals, you name it, uh, and particularly their, their institutions as barriers, mm-hmm. right? and understandably so. People who have different institutions and believe differently are getting in the way. They want everybody to believe like them. So yes, uh, the idea of delegitimizing the, the, uh, their, their, their opposition, if you will, in terms of how society should be governed and how, how uh, Christianity should be governed, you know, is, is the absolute core of the threat to civilized society all over the world that they actually uh, represent. Yeah. And my understanding, and I've got a professor of theology here, uh, being Jewish, the notion of prophets came from my tribe, Torah, Old Testament, and my understanding is that if somebody made a prophecy that didn't come true, Scripture says you should stone them to death. Am yeah. I right, Doc? Yeah, 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 for sure. That's in the Bible. <laughs> right, so when you're that. telling me they yeah. came up with criteria for prophets, <laughs> and they, if, they're test, if they're saying, you know, they got a revelation, Trump was elected in 2020, yeah. then they either have to be stoned to death or they have to blame Biden and the Democrats and the <laughs> satanic Illuminati for stealing it. There's always a backdoor answer to their, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, there's always a way to kind of circumvent these types of problems. First of all, what they will say, and especially you'll see it in the, in the prophetic standards, but you'll see it also in responses, in various types of responses that came out, uh, for example, in Christianity Today, where people will say that prophecy, if they do believe in prophets today, 
they are not equivalent prophets as those of the Old Testament prophets. They function more in terms of how prophetic uh, or pro the prophetic or prophecy functioned in the context of the New Testament. And uh, it's not infallible mm -hmm. because the Bible says that we understand and we know things in part or mm -hmm. partially. Mm -hmm. But when Christ returns, we will know all things fully. Mm -hmm. So it is possible to prophesy partially but not with exact precision. Yeah. So they will kind of, it's a kind of a cop-out. Yes, you I'd understand? say it's a big yeah. cop-out from it my is a perspective. Big oh, absolutely. But they will look at this more from a New Testament perspective to kind of keep in motion the legitimacy of prophecy and prophets. Mm -hmm. Because for them, it, it boils down again to the validity of what they understand to be the fivefold ministry. Uh, sometimes... Uh, that, that, this goes by the name of the ascension gifts mm -hmm. of apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's in the letter to the Ephesians. Mm -hmm. um, so they say this is still valuable for today. But again, you'll have all sorts of people that will understand this very differently, that mm -hmm. will not see, for example, apostles and prophets as an office but more as a function, mm -hmm. as a, a kind of an anointing, mm -hmm. a, a role that someone would have, but not an office. And they would not equate, for example, modern-day apostles to the 12 apostles of Jesus. Right. You see? So, so there's all sorts of ways to kind of try to navigate this uh, to yeah. make sense for them. All uh, I can say is watching handkerchiefs get rid of COVID <laughs> or... The, the the chanting with Supreme Court justices, you know, uh, this is not like healthy. I mean, I can't help myself. I'm I've, I'm a student of social psychology as well as a clinical, clinically trained mental health professional, and it seems to me like this is programming. This is you know hypnotic programming, repetition, and fear. And I might add, I've had many clients who were exercise, these are air quotes that I'm doing in the video, uh, and had nervous breakdowns because they were convinced they were filled with demons and they couldn't get rid of the demons. And it turned out they were doubting the prophet. Like that was the problem. They needed to get out of the cult. Where, where part of the rift in the schism is, is what Andre was talking about, because uh, the, uh, the prophetic standards people uh, see uh, the rogue prophets as going in the direction of individualist Old Testament prophets, right? Mm -hmm. And what the prophetic standards people want to do is say, well, look, you know, you might hear something pretty wild, but, you know, before you go public with it, you really should, you know, consult with uh, some group of elders, right? Some, some apostles to confirm whether it's something that's of God or just something that a frail human being cooked up. Mm -hmm. So that's where they want to go. And what one thing that's so interesting is that for a movement that considers itself to be non-denominational, mm -hmm. they're starting to behave like a denomination, right? You can't point, just be point. a bunch of people going off in all directions, saying all kinds of stuff, and claim to represent the same thing. 
Mm. How it, it, it's a herding cats uh, kind, kind of thing. And mm -hmm. they can't do it and they won't admit it. They keep putting out standards and everybody keeps violating, including their own leaders. They have no mechanisms of accountability and it's never going to work. Therefore, one of the things that the rest of us are confronted with is a movement that is going in the direction of making wild prophecies, making wild accusations, being socially disruptive, uh, even against their own people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I, if I can add to what uh, please, uh, please. Fred was saying, it's it's exactly that. In terms of uh, when when you look, for example, at the question of you know authority, it's who's going to in the end make the standard. Now, when we look at the prophetic standards, for example, and mm -hmm. and you have a link through in, in the article to the prophetic standards, a lot of what they say is supported by scripture. Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, prophecies are to be evaluated or weighed, mm -hmm. what Fred was saying in terms of, hey, you need to make sure, you need to check out, you know, if your prophecy makes sense or not. This is biblical. Right. So they're trying to go back to some form of, it's, it's a prophetic standard, but some form of biblical anchorage to say, listen, whoa, you know, you have to weigh prophets. You have to weigh prophecy, and the spirit of prophets is, su is submitted to prophets. That mm -hmm. means that people can't just go on wild goose and, and lose control over what they're, they're saying. Right. Uh, they can prophesy and actually engage in intelligent forms of speaking out or speaking the Word of God, if someone can understand prophecy in those terms. But Professor, I need to ask you directly, because <laughs> maybe I don't understand the New Testament, even though I've read it several times <laughs> and I've been learning from, from, from uh, very learned theologians. My understanding is Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, or render unto Caesar what yeah. Caesar's, or it's harder for, what, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what I'm seeing with these groups is money and power and power and money and sex and abuse politics. and money yeah. and power and the opposite. And Fred, I, I have to ask you to talk about your book and the, and, and the, uh, the quote you know, of eternal hostility, given the time that we're living in right now in the United States. Well, sure, happy to do that. Uh, but I want to call people's attention to your Twitter feed, where there's a prophet named uh, Julie Green, right? And the and the, the picture from her from her own Twitter stream that that, that, that you posted shows her saying, uh, you know, something about how a leader is going to die, right? And then there's a picture in the background of the White House burning. This is the kind of excess that the prophetic standards people are concerned about. But this isn't just a, a, a micro-theological issue. This is, this is disruptive of society, right? This is the delegitimization of, of democratic institutions and using the force of, of the voice of God to say the White House might burn and the president might die. She doesn't say it, but she implies it. And that's mm -hmm. part of the disingenuousness of the whole thing, too. Yeah, I want to plug a, a, a book called Lone Act of Terrorism. It's Oxford University Press. And I did a chapter in it that basically says, you guys got it all wrong. These people are being radicalized online and they're going out to commit these acts of violence. This is not just 
people coming up with, I, I think I'm going to ram the White House today and shoot myself in the head. Yeah, they're being revved up at the very least. Yeah. And uh, Julie Green is a perfect example of it. And why, you know, e even leaders of the NAR are concerned. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but uh, to back to your question about the title of the book. Now, this was back in the day. Uh, the title comes from uh, Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And uh, inside the rotunda of the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, you can look and see, you know, I've sworn on the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Hmm. And that was, uh, the quote comes from a letter he wrote to Dr., his friend, Dr. Benjamin Rush, uh, over the issues, uh, as I recall, of, um, uh, of the personal attacks made against uh, Jefferson and his religious character, because mm -hmm. his political opponents in, the, in, in one of his elections were running around, particularly the clergy in New England, um, were saying that, you know, agents of Jefferson are going to come and seize your family Bibles if he's elected. And so that's when Jefferson said, said what he said. You mean there was so, disinformation back then? <laughs> uh, yeah, it took a different, little different form, but, yeah. but indeed, you know, making up, you know, prophetic lies, you know, to discredit a political opponent and alarm people with something not just politically bad, but ungodly is going on. Mm -hmm. So that's why that's in that's why it's inside the rotunda of the Jefferson Memorial because it's it's an eternal issue, right? We're always going to have these kinds of problems, and the, the part of the task of the American experiment, the experiment of any democratic society, is to understand how are we going to contend with these kinds of elements that are authoritarian and totalitarian, anti-democratic, and will resort to absolutely anything, including telling lies about what God is telling them in order to accomplish their ends. What do we yeah, do? Yeah, so I have to ask you, what do we do, Fred and Andre? <laughs> Please guide us. There's so many activists who are concerned. Now they're waking up to the state, you know, Project Blitz playbook, which you outed years ago and you did uh, Blitz Watch. And you've been trying to warn, and but now people are like, "Oh, we've got to do something." What do we do? Well, uh, <laughs> not a panacea here, but uh, but one basic piece of the puzzle is that you know if we're going to preserve democracy, we have to act like you know uh, like like it's a democracy. A long time ago, back in the eighties, uh, the strategists of this movement figured out that uh, they could use the tools of electoral democracy to erode and to end it. Because they realized that a relatively small fraction uh, of the eligible voters, right, mm -hmm. are even registered. And a smaller fraction of those turn out in, uh, I think it's something like 60 to 70% in a good presidential election year. And the farther down the electoral ladder you go, particularly in off your elections, the lower the voter participation. Mm -hmm. So, and then if you're talking about party primaries, you're talking about tiny numbers of people, mm -hmm. you know? So in a, say, a, a historically Republican or red district, right, you can pick up a, um, uh, a Republican primary seat for city council or state legislature with a few thousand votes, mm -hmm. right? Now, I recall being at, uh, at a Christian coalition conference where the political director was saying, so do you think we could find that number of people, you know, in our churches? You bet we can. 
So systematically identifying and registering and training and turning out people into voters, to activists, to candidates, to legislators has been the strategy for several decades, and it's working. There's uh, data from, uh, uh, that just shows that white evangelicals, right, uh, back, uh, you know, I forget what the number is, back in 1986, were constituted 26, 27% of the popular of the electorate, right? Mm-hmm. And that number has continued, you know, about the same level, 26, 27, 28%, even as the percentage of white evangelicals in the general population has declined to 15%. Right. This speaks to the power and the sophistication of their political organizing, which is greater than any other sector of society. Mm-hmm. So if you wonder why things are happening the way they are, It's for that reason, which gives us where the answer is. The rest of society is the majority, right? (laughs) We may all religiously and politically disagree with one another about many things, but if we value constitutional democracy, we know what to do. Yeah, it's all about that. eh? You have to adopt the tactics that they used and apply it across the board with a greater majority. And one of the things they did also is inform their people. And this is why we write pieces like we do. You see, I think we need to speak out and and write and explain to people. Sometimes it's difficult and it's complicated. And, you know, you have to wrap your mind around groups and movements and names and whatever. But if you don't inform people, people don't know. And they just generally paint brush, you know, in general terms. They're not, it's not precise. They don't know what to target. They don't know what to look for. They're not, they're not sure on what to be alert about, alerted about. That's why we need to inform. This, why, this is why we have people like Fred that's been working on this for, for decades, mm-hmm. writing on this, and you, Stephen. And I'm trying to do my small share in, in my academic world. Uh, I think that's key. Right. If you have informed individuals, and when they're informed, they know what to do, it makes a big difference. Yeah, right? and I'll, I'll just add that cults have been hiring sociologists of religion to say brainwashing doesn't exist. They say they're happy. And who are we to say that any group is a destructive authoritarian cult because maybe Jesus had a cult. And so they they just deliberately misinform and put out disinformation. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm wishing more Christian people would speak to the people in NAR not attacking them, but really with love, with compassion, with respect, ask questions that make them think and get back to the real values of love and humility and service and not take over governments. And and so that's a piece for me, aside from mobilizing all the former members of all types of cults who have left and are too ashamed or embarrassed to say, yeah, I was in Scientology, or I was in the Moonies, or I was in an MLM, or I was in a controlling relationship for 10 years, you know, and I didn't see my family or friends. If everybody does their part also in in identifying, mind control really is real. Because the thing is, if we wait for the prophetic standards to be applied, we might wait forever. 
You see, <laughs> it might not. I'm not happen. waiting for the prophetic. I'm waiting <laughs> no, no, for the no, no, constitution. No, no, but that's, to be that's why we have to. Right. We have to uh, engage because the thing is, it's been already a year now since the writing of the prophetic standards, and you see people like Stephen Strang involved left and right with all sorts of individuals with the reawaken. Uh, uh, tour with yep. all sorts of different rogue prophets, but he signed the prophetic standards. Mm -hmm. You see, so so you kind of wonder, uh, what are you doing here? Are you is this just like a PR thing? Um, are you really looking for true solutions to this problem uh, inside that that specific movement? There probably are people in the NAR that are fed up with what's going on. Mm. But at the same time, there are people that are, are there that are playing both sides of the aisle. And um, we've seen that even in the 90s with the, uh, the, the Kansas City Prophet thing. Um, at first, it was very clear with uh, people like Wimber, uh, you know, he took a stand. And then in 1994, there was the Toronto blessing. And he diso he dissociated himself. Mm -hmm. Like the church was in Toronto, a vineyard church. Mm. And because of the reports of all sorts of physical, weird manifestations of animal noises and all sorts of stuff that were happening in Toronto, he eventually took a stand. But what was interesting, what is interesting to note with Wimber, despite the fact that he had the courage to actually take a stand mm. and invite this church to dissociate itself from the vineyard, he did not he, he did not speak ill of the revival. Mm. There was a, a there there was something in him that kind of restrained him from speaking ill against it. Because there's always in the midst of these groups and these people, there's always a, um, a fear of if they speak or start naming names. This is why you have no names, mm. you see, in the prophetic standards. If you start naming names, if you start labeling stuff and saying stuff as they, they are, you might grieve the spirit. You may get you sued. sued. Yes, there's that. But, <laughs> but amongst themselves, what's worse in, in, right. in spiritual terms, mm. you might grieve the spirit. Mm. You might quench the Holy Spirit. So this is why there is hesitancy, I think, even after a year where you have people still kind of, you know, playing both sides. And I don't know, like we wrote, uh, Fred and I, we're not sure if this is going to, in the end, really be enforced as uh, they probably wanted it to be enforced from the beginning. Right. I want to ask. I, I don't think it can be. And I think they have no intention no. of enforcing it. I think they're hoping in, in appealing to their, their fellow, you know, charismatics, you know, that they can call them to, dare we say it, reason, right? That, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But here's, here, here's, here's the opportunity and the risk in what's going on right now. I mean, the, the risk is that uh, we cheer for the people who seem reasonable, people who are stand, want to stand for pr prophetic standards. In fact, those are people with whom most of us disagree. They, they, they're, they're theocratic activists. Mm -hmm. they're, what theologies and activities they, they, they engage in are explicitly theocratic. And we don't have the time to go into all of that. But let me just say that one of the two co-authors or initiators of the prophetic standards is this guy, Joseph Matera, right? 
he was one of the people who was on the original invitational committee to all evangelicals to come and meet with Donald Trump and see what he's really about. Matera created, helped to create Donald Trump, and now he's regretting the, the monster that he's created. But, here's, but this is the opportunity, and that is for the rest of us to recognize this. There is a tremendous rift within our, the people who are the opponents of democracy, mm -hmm. right? And Matera and Brown are among them, and all the people who are enabling this through action or inaction, as Andre says, are a part of the problem, right? We yep. can identify that. It is so rare in public life that a, uh, that a formidable uh, opponent, right? reveals its own most profound weakness. And that's what the prophetic standards have done for us. And I think it's really important for people to, uh, to look at it in that spirit, because an anti-democratic uh, entity is in danger of collapse. Yeah, absolutely. And Fred, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, you taught me about the existence of the Manhattan Declaration. And it just seems very important for the public to understand What's going on? Please. Uh, well, uh, said before, there are many, many, many changes that have gone on in, in over the decades. People with certain religious and political visions come up with strategies, and they realize that none of them can, no one can do it alone, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so they end up having to find, okay, how are we, we're going to have to agree and disagree mm -hmm. on certain things where, and, you know, we don't want to, uh, compromise on our standards, but we have to figure out a way to work together to to beat you know the people who are in favor of democratic societies and religious pluralism. So what happened was that the is that conservative Catholic intellectuals and certain Christian right and evangelical leaders held a series of theological dialogues beginning in the in the mid nineties, and uh, eventually they had a breakthrough, and this neoconservative Catholic. Uh, Professor Robert P. George said, you know, Eureka, I've got it, and uh, named three things on which he thought that uh, the people he wanted to bring together could all agree. And these were, in his words, you know, life, marriage, and religious liberty. And they did. And uh, soon thereafter, uh, something well, life, like— life, I've got to interrupt, forgive me. That's about taking away women's right to choose their own reproductive health care, correct? That's what they mean by life. It's an anti-abortion okay. view. I just wanted to be clear. It's in sure. the and, and marriage, of Roe v. Wade. opposition to marriage equality for LGBTQ people. Right. Know, and religious freedom is a, is a tortured understanding of the idea. But, the, uh, uh, but uh, very soon thereafter, you know, well, they, they got, first they got 500 people to sign on. And for me, you know, the, the telling thing about why it's so important uh, politically, but I, I would argue important in the history of Christianity, because uh, it was the first time you had uh, conservative evangelicals and Baptists and conservative Catholic bishops, you know, agreeing to just about anything. These are people who, are, to this day, don't, don't agree on the legitimacy of each other's positions and, and religious offices. Ask, how, ask Baptists whether they think that the Pope is a legitimate office. So, but, they, but politically, they had to agree. So you have, for the first time, 150 sitting Catholic prelates you know, signing on to a document with important evangelical leaders. This was unprecedented. 
to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, Andre, but in, in American and, and global history. In, in, in fact, in fact, I think that the, this, this uh, declaration, declaration mm. probably stemmed from a first attempt. I don't know if you were aware of this. Uh, probably you were. The, the, there's a first attempt in 1994 yes. with a document that was signed, uh, and it was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. That was the you first. Had, uh, there was a first yeah, of a that series. Was, uh, that's what yeah, I'm referring that, to. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and you had mm -hmm. uh, Chuck Colson at the time. You had oh, uh, Chuck Richard recruited Moore. Mike Pence into the family. Have, had to <laughs> yeah, insert. yeah. So these people, and you had, uh, for example, Richard Newhouse. And that was... What Fred was saying with these specific points, that was a kind of a first foray in this possible coalition. It's interesting because at the time, Timothy George was writing for the, uh, the uh, Christianity Today, and he, was, he actually labeled this effort as a, an ecumenism in the trenches. <laughs> so just think about the mindset, what that speaks about. It speaks about war. Yeah. It speaks about cultural war. Hadn't thought about, but absolutely. It's that's how he labeled that that but document. Here, so it's, it's it's that in mind. Here here was the immediate upshot of their issuing yeah. the Manhattan Declaration. So those three those three uh, ideas, life, marriage, and religious liberty, began to appear on the websites of all the politically active Christian right groups. It appeared on the website of uh, the pro-life secretariat of the Catholic bishops, right? And uh, most tellingly of all, uh, in Mitt Romney, in his 2012 acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention for the Republican nomination, specifically named those three things. As a Mormon, he had a problem, but he wanted to signal that, you know, hey, I'm one of you and, you know, you're with me. And that's how the Republican, moderate Republican candidate for president did it, right? That's how important the, the Manhattan Declaration was to uh, to everything from uh, the center right to the far right in American politics. Yeah, and I have to just go back to 1974 when I was recruited into the Mooney's cult, and Moon said democracy was satanic and God wants a theocracy and talked about infiltrating the government and you know talked about changing the Constitution to make it a capital offense if people offended the quote the messiah air quotes around the messiah and i was told to fast for richard nixon during watergate because god wanted nixon to be president and so for me it's surreal in 2022 to see this you know cancer that's metastasized so extremely it's really yeah. it's really shocking but the cure starts, I think, with a correct diagnosis of what's going on. Who are the major players? Who are the bad actors who genuinely care about freedom and, and religious liberty and, and women's rights and gay rights and indigenous rights? Uh, and those who are authoritarians who want to keep doing fossil fuels and and uh, want to claim there's a hoax uh, around climate change, and they were doing the same thing around the COVID uh, pandemic. And and the people that follow them that belong to apostolic centers or apostolic uh, networks. 
they don't have any issues with this type of authoritarianism because they're already drilled right. this way in apostolic centers and apostolic networks. You see, by this idea of apostolic governance, of uh, accountability, uh, there's, there's some elements that's very, very close to the shepherding movement in, in the way things are administrated in, in, these, uh, in these networks. So, uh, you know, what, what they're experiencing at a micro level, a kind of internal dominion mm -hmm. atmosphere, mm -hmm. is now to be taken out of the centers and the networks into society. And the political or the marketing strategy to get there is, of course, the mountains. We know that. The, the seven, seven mountains. mountains. Yeah, I have it a list that. here. <laughs> but you could probably do it by name. But this yeah. is taking over Lance Wall now. Religion, family, education, government and law, media, news and commentary, arts and entertainment, and business and economics. Mm -hmm. And if they can control these seven areas, then they can control everything. Culture. Yeah. Right? I also want to, for our listeners, I want to say I've done a ton of cases helping people get out of shepherding, discipling cults. And I just wanted to say that that uh, when I started my work, uh, one of the big ones started here in Massachusetts. And basically the leader said, I'm a prophet and we're gonna set up a pyramid structure with assigned disciplers who will be in the position of Jesus, who will look at your schedule for the day in, in 10 minute increments and make sure you're doing everything properly and you have to confess to the discipler, even if they may be a newer member than you, or maybe they don't know the Bible half the way as good as you know it, but this authoritarianism that goes straight up, you know, uh, to, you know, the head. So this is old for me, but the, th the last thing I want to say about it is I remember an old book that was used by leaders called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And I remember in the forward, it said, the communists are brainwashing people for Satan. We need to brainwash people for Jesus. Huh? And of course, my yeah. argument with all Abrahamic faiths, cults of all Abrahamic faiths is, hey, however you want to understand the Garden of Eden story as a metaphor, whatever, God, Almighty God didn't brainwash Adam and Eve to be obedient. So it must have been part of the plan to give choice and the ability to say, no, I'm not going to follow this, right? And then to follow in faith because it's your choice, not because you're being coerced. Mm -hmm. The thing I want to say about the authoritarian aspect of all this, and that is you can't always see it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not evident. If you, when you have hierarchical religious institutions, like say the Catholic Church, and you have, have no, like say Cardinal Dolan, right? And, uh, and he's wearing uh, you know, certain robes and uh, certain garbs, so you understand his standing, and like in the military, military mm. uniforms and ranks and whatnot. With the apostles, you don't even see that. As Andrea was saying earlier, they don't even necessarily use their title, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're standing in, in this spiritual movement. Mm -hmm. So you're more likely to hear them not even use a title at all. And right. for me, one of the uh, examples is uh, Chuck Pierce. Mm -hmm. He's one of the top yeah. apostles, 
right? And everybody in the movement knows he's the apostle. They read his books and they go to his things. But I watched him in, in an event uh, that took place earlier this year, and he's wearing a, you know, a plaid work shirt and jeans. And he's just Chuck, you know? You would never identify him and say, oh, there goes a religious guy, right? Let alone a leader. Mm. So they don't use the titles and, and they don't have the religious garb. It. And it doesn't look like a religious movement, let alone an authoritarian religious movement. And so you have to understand what they're up to in order right. to even see right. it. Yeah, you have to yeah. look at the behaviors and assume that there's deception happening, whether it's outright lies or withholding vital information or distorting it to make it seem palatable. Like the Moonies would say, oh, we're pro-family, but they don't say, oh, we're the only true family and everyone else's parents are Satan. <laughs> There's a savviness to it, right? They know what's going to push people's buttons and cause a backlash uh, and, and a response that might overwhelm them, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they, and they react say only to, as much as they need to. Yeah, and they react to labels and stuff like that. I, I remember I, was, I posted this recently on my feed about uh, how in 20, I think it was in 27, uh, 2007 or earlier, I, I can't remember when, when the issue of dominionism came mm -hmm. up and uh, you know, they were all denying <laughs> the fact that they were dominionists. No, we're not dominion. No, you know, and it, it was, it was a meeting between us Hillman, Lance Walnow and Johnny Enlow. Mm. And uh, everybody was like, walk, we're walking on eggs, you know, and Hillman was really embarrassed or, or kind of annoyed how people understood dominionism. And he wanted to, really tone it down as much as possible. And, and Walnow was saying, you know, we need to be very careful because this is insider, insider language. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people in the media or people outside, you can't speak that way because they won't get what you're saying. Amongst ourselves, we understand ourselves. And, and uh, Enlo was even at that point, at that time, Enlo was saying, no, no, we should maybe even not use Dominion as a concept. Right. Um, yeah, I wrote but, in 1988 about insider doctrines and outsider mm, doctrines, and you can it, believe exactly. something inside, but don't tell anyone else. And that's why it's important to read their stuff. Yes. You see, to, to familiarize yourself, watch their videos, even if you fall asleep sometimes, you have to look at the primary sources to know what they're talking about. You can't always rely on what someone else says about something. You have to know it for yourself. Yeah, and, and so you need the, to you need you need the insight. But I know back, back when this controversy about dominionism first popped up and there was denialism going on. You know, all you had to do was was take out C. Peter Wagner's book, right? He's the founder of the New Apostolic Reformation <laughs> with a great big title, Dominion. Dominion. And then his discussion in several parts of the book where he says, well, you know, a lot of people said I shouldn't call, talk about dominionism and, and, and all this stuff, but I think we need to be right out there and say what we're talking about. And so he does. And then he even uh, sources, you know, his vision for dominionism based on the theocratic theologian R.J. Rushdoony, uh, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the seminal thinker of Christian Reconstructionism. It's in the book. He says, yeah, this, this, and this, and this. You know, here are my theological sources for this whole thing. But what is interesting, though, is that if you go looking for Rushdoony in the index, you won't find it. You have to read the book. So yeah. interesting. But I want to warn our listeners 
Andre and Fred are experts and so they understand how to watch these videos and how to parse and to, how to be scholarly about it. And it's it's not for the faint of heart because it's very, you know, droning at times and, and repetitive and uh, that toxic in, from my point of view. But I'm so grateful that there are people who are experts like yourselves who made the effort, who keep making the effort to understand it and then call out to the rest of the public, hello, this is what's happening. We need to pay attention to this. Um, so I'm grateful for that, uh, of course. Um, I want to, I guess I want to come back to solutions. Any other solutions that you think of? I mean, I'm hoping people may want from other media will want to interview you both and do you know bigger pieces to educate the public? But what other thoughts do you have about? I think people should interview definitely uh, Fred on this. Oh no, they should interview Andre definitely, <laughs> or the two of you this together, like been, I said. Yeah, yeah, hey guys, yeah, yeah, that's that's fine, that's fine. I, I'm I'm all for that. But his phone is not ringing enough, and he's been he's been working on this for decades. And uh, people need to know about it. His pieces are regular on this stuff. And uh, I think it's that. I think a big, big part of it is, is really we do the work. We try to translate this in manageable uh, terms. Yeah. But people have to make the effort of reading. You see, our piece is a long piece. We have to admit we had to fight a bit with Evan on this and you know go back and forth because it is a long piece. Mm -hmm. But it requires that. You can't know any of this. It's not like a fast food, you know, right. solution. Uh, you know, you're going to learn about this in five minutes. It doesn't work that right. way. So, yeah. so people we're going to do a blog with a, based on this <laughs> with all the links right. that you guys want yeah. to put out. Well, to I, the... want to, I want to add to Andre because he's speaking to the hard part. Yeah. Right? They could slog through our article. You know, it's not that long, but... But uh, but the uh, but honestly, it's a it's a matter of changing the, the solution we offered about doing democracy and all that good stuff. But if if the task of democracy is is to preserve and defend and advance it, again, we know there are historic adversaries and they're still around and they've changed forms. So it's the task of everybody to do some homework. Right. I'm sorry, you really do have to delve into some stuff. You got to read some books. You know, you got to look at some videos and, and hopefully you can find a, a wise teacher to guide you through it. But this is the thing. There are two main pieces to the task of this. One is people to have, have sufficient knowledge to even have a conversation, let alone con con concoct a strategy, right? right. And to have exactly. the conversation, you have to have some common vocabulary. Knowledge and vocabulary, meaning agreed upon terms. Everybody yes. wants to come up with a bumper sticker. If we only call them this, then they'll be discredited and everybody will understand. Well, that's just baloney. And uh, right. that, that's, that, that's, a pol that's me being very polite. So, uh, uh, so Fred, I want to name the article that I read and that prompted me to call you both and say, please, let's do an interview. It was in religiondispatches.org. Uh, it was August 9th that it was published, and it's by the two of you, Frederick Clarkson and Andre Gagne. New Apostolic Reformation Faces Profound Rift Due to Trump Prophecies 
and, quote, spiritual manipulation of the prophetic gift, unquote. So check it out, and we will have a link to it. And please look at my past interview with Andre and several interviews with Frederick Clarkson and such. And as we wrap up in the next five minutes, uh, are there any um, nonprofits, Fred or Andre, that you know of that are doing like real good work to um, counter this effort to subvert our democracy? Fred, you know that you know. Well, there know there are that. there are a lot of fine organizations <laughs> that meet that criteria, Stephen. Uh, yeah. No, I have to say none of them, and so. To our friends and allies, take this take this video to heart. Nobody's talking about the new apostolic reformation, let alone the kind of rift that we're, and opportunity that we're talking about here. But people doing fine work about opposing uh, Christian right and Christian nationalism include Christians Against Christian Nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a wonderful joint effort of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and mainline uh, de uh, denominational leaders uh, and, and even some Catholics and, and evangelicals. So that's something to look at. Um, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, uh, the Interfaith Alliance. Uh, if you, if you uh, look at those three, that's a good start. There are more. Great. I, I think it's so important that we not feel isolated and not feel helpless or hopeless, but to really think about what we can contribute, and not just money, but time and energy and effort, to message people that we know. And we may know people in battleground states who are relatives or friends. And I've been encouraging people, if, you if you've cut them off on social media or blocked them, time to say, I miss you, how are you? And mm -hmm. if they're angry at you because you cursed them out, apologize and say, I'm so sorry, but you are important to me. And I really would like to understand what your thinking is at this moment. I really would like to step into your shoes and engage in a respectful dialogue where you're asking them questions that make them think and reality test. Yeah, I, I would add to that that there, in, in some cases, we may not have those kinds of uh, you know rifts in our relationships. Mm. But remember, all, all these folks are in our own towns and our cities and our states. And the task is to figure out how are we all going to learn to live to, to one another with one another in, in relative peace and harmony. So to understand that there are people who think like this and are starting to view you as demonic, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're infested with demons in some way. We're only human beings. We may differ on religion and politics, but we're still only yeah. human beings. We're not supernatural beings, you know. Right. Uh, you know, out, out to create, uh, to be Satan's agents in the world, and with whom they're preparing to do physical battle. It's a matter. I think part of the task is related to what you're talking about, Stephen, and that's you know to de-demonize ourselves. Yeah. To fig mm -hmm. to figure out what our relationship can be and should be with people who may be headed in that direction. Exactly. Yes. And I, I, again, I want to just say I was Jewish growing up, got into the Moonies, and I was shown the Exorcist movie, and Moon said God made this movie, and this was a prophecy of what would happen if we left the Unification Church. And I was afraid of my own thoughts after that. I was mm. so obsessed with preventing evil spirits from invading me that I did the mm. thought stopping, chanting and praying mm. to get rid of the doubts 
So I yeah. was just reinforced in this indoctrination. It's pretty exhausting living like it that. is. <laughs> you know, it's pretty exhausting. Uh, people that will have time to view the interview that I gave uh, with Stephen a few years back, where I talk about my own background. Mm in there, where I used to be a pastor in a Pentecostal church. We adopted NAR practices. We did spiritual mapping, you know, exorcisms, all of that. It is very, very, very tiresome Agreed. to live that way. It drains you. You're constantly, you know, trying to figure out how to be more pure, how to, you know, be less infested by, by evil thoughts and also. So it's, 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 it's a hard life. Yeah, and it's the opposite of love. And, uh, it's yeah, yeah, the opposite exactly, of exactly. peace. It's yeah, the opposite exactly. so of humility, why, too, for the yeah, leaders yeah. who are like... So if you can find something that could really reassure mm. you um, and and help you uh, cope with these problems and answer some of your questions, uh, I think, uh, you know, people like like you, Stephen, and, and Fred and others uh, do fantastic work for mm, them. Thank you. So, Fred, what's the status on your new book project? Are you, are you going forward? or, or you, Oh, yeah, you... it's under underway. Great. So I'm looking forward to both of your books in English soon, guys. <laughs> and I want to thank you for your, your intelligence, your insight, your, your stick-to-it-to-it-ness. That's not the right word, but you get the idea. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> you, you know, because we need to come together. This is a critical moment in, in human history, I feel. And uh, we really need a supermajority in November. And then we can start <laughs> writing laws to, to undo. And we haven't even talked about the Supreme Court and the Federalist Society and all of that. Well... We'll do another one again on on uh, on SCOTUS, guys. Thank you so much, and and we'll talk again soon. I hope. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for your kind invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. Yes, thanks, Steve. Thank you for all your good work and keeping uh, keeping this going too. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut, and join our online community at IGotOut.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.